Well, hello. This is Daniel Schwarzman, co-host of A Positive Jam, a podcast that breaks down classic albums, starting with our first season on the Whole Stays Classic 2004 album, The Whole Steady Almost Killed Me. Every killer party ends, and we're rounding off our breakdown of Almost Killed Me's main tracks for A Positive Jam by looking at track 10, the final track, Killer Parties. We bring out a full team. Sean Westfall joins us, sounding like this. Sort of a five-minute build-up, uh, an apologia. Matt Brooks is on the podcast, sounding like this. I watched this sort of play out in Mike's head. And of course, fellow host Mike Taylor is on the track, sounding like this. We saw him at the Black Cat in November. Here's why Killer Parties matters. It celebrates what the whole city is about. The joy, the partying, the coming together. Get at that. Mike starts us with a story showing why the whole steady means so much to him. We then break down the famous Craig Finn's So Much Joy rant. It's a special song from a special band, so it's a special episode. Here we go. Killer parties. So I wanted to tell, just jump into this one. I think it's one of the most important songs the whole study has and I wanted to sort of capture the feeling that it expresses with a story. We're traveling back in time to 2006. I was living in Washington, D.C. I was living in a neighborhood called Shaw, which today is like has, all the houses are between like one and two million dollars. It's one of the most fancy neighborhoods in the city. But back in 2006, it was the low rent neighborhood. And so it was great for me. I was just out of college living with housemates. To give you a feel for it, it was our next door neighbor was named Grandma Sheila, and she had her sons and nephews standing on one of the corners of our street late at night, in her words, to make sure that nothing bad would happen on the block. I don't know whether that's what they were really up to, but that was, that was the type of neighborhood Shaw was at that time. It was great, the rent was so cheap, we had all just graduated from college and were lucky enough to have great jobs. In 2006, the economy was just in this wild sort of euphoric boom. And I was sort of getting out of my undergrad, like pretension philosophizing mode and much more into just taking advantage of the fact that no one really expects anything of you when you're 22, 23 years old. And so you have no real responsibilities. In that context, I was getting very deep into the Hold Steady and their message of partying and exploring and all of that stuff. My job was to copy edit manuscripts for a nonprofit publishing house that picked up academic journals that had been sloughed off by university presses. So it's basically like this life support academia literary journal stuff. So if I made a mistake, no one would read it. And the type of mistake I could make was like a dash instead of a hyphen. I wasn't very good at that job, but I didn't really need to be. So my housemates and I threw a lot of house parties to the extent that I would invite all my coworkers from this publishing house, like 20 of us who were all roughly the same age. I'd invite my boss. My boss saw me doing illegal stuff at these parties. We were just entirely focused on going out. And we listened to a lot of Hold Steady, a lot of gangster rap, like Young Jeezy, a lot of Guns N' Roses, 
just like banger anthems and got amped and went out. We go to a biker bar called Asylum that I know Brooks knows well. One night, someone got arrested, a regular there for beating up someone who messed with his bike. So there was a lot of, we're looking for and finding kind of these little like hold steady type of rough crowd experiences. We were hitting like turbo mode by April of 2006. We went up to Brooklyn and saw the whole study at the Warsaw, which is a legendary show, at least in my mind. And at this time, the whole Boys and Girls in America hadn't come out yet, but they were giving us a taste of Stuck Between Stations and Chips Ahoy as some of their songs. So for me, it was like, I loved every song on the first two albums. And then the third album, all I heard was their bangers. And so this was like the real peak for me, the wave was cresting. So we had a great time up in New York. We stayed out till dawn. We had brought a, a young woman with us who had not heard of the band before. And one of my housemates ended up making out with her that night, that kind of thing. We then went into overdrive by October 2006. So we went to see the whole study again at Auto Bar in Baltimore. Auto Bar is like probably one of the best venues on the East Coast and maybe in the whole country. It's like this shotgun where the stage is waist high and there's like a balcony on one side, but the people in the balcony are like shoulder height to the performers. So everyone's packed in this incredibly tiny thing and it's like this, just there's too many people in there and the bands are too big for the venue and the whole study is kind of right in that inflection point where Auto Bar was perfect. We bring a different young woman to that show. We'll call her Mary. She went to Catholic University. She was conservative. So it never like, I don't know, it almost seemed like she had never heard rock music before. Um, but she had a crush on one of the guys in our house. So we convinced her to be the designated driver for the night. We get to Auto Bar well, like right outdoors. We start drinking Natty Bows and get fired up. There's like a probably freshman in high school or something like a nerdy looking kid who's there and really clearly loves the band. And I'm embarrassed to say that we like kind of gave him trouble because in our mind, he wasn't like getting excited enough for the show or like expressing himself physically, but whatever. We rage through the entire set. If you look up the set online, it's like, in my mind, the perfect hold steady show. And they close they do the, they come back for the encore and they open the encore with Positive Jam and the first song on this album. And then they end with Killer Parties. And it's just like a transcendent experience. It feels like it lasted 15 minutes. The song is only five minutes on the album. Craig Finn gives a speech in the middle of the song and they can kind of jam and stretch it out for as long as they want. And so we're just transfixed by this. And then about halfway through the song, Tad and everyone starts passing around a handle of Jack Daniels. They're all drinking from the handle. And then about three quarters of the way through the song, they start pulling people on stage from the audience. And I was one of the people who got on stage. So were all my housemates. I got my arm around Craig Finn. I'm drinking from the same bottle of Jack that he was drinking from. I'm trying to scream into the microphone. It's getting rowdy. It's super fun. And then the song ends and the house lights come on and we're all just like sweaty and beat up and feeling great. And we don't, sometimes when a show ends, you don't want to leave. You want to like soak it up. We were in that vibe. Anyway, 
we hop in the car and we pull out and we're all three sheets to the wind, except for Mary, who was our designated driver. And as we pull out of the parking lot, the siren goes off and we get pulled over. And the four of us are just like shouting all this ill-advised stuff at the police officer, like not trying to escalate the situation, but just like, hey, what's the problem? We got a designated driver. Everything's fine. We're just having fun at a sh-. You know, that kind of stuff. And she's just shouting like, I'm the designated driver. I'm the designated driver. I'm the designated driver. It turns out we had a taillight out. The guy who owned the car pulls out from the glove box a re- an invoice for taillight repair that was like two weeks old. Cop lets us go and we go on home. And then a couple days later, this being 2006, uh, we check Mary's blog and she's written this gigantic blog post about how these rough boys had shown her a really exciting night on the town and she felt like such a hero for being the designated driver. And I just think that that's probably my peak of enjoying this band. And I think it just, that experience encapsulates a lot, I think, of what the music is about and what I was up to in my life at that time. It was before you get a little bit more grown up and partying starts to get a little bit old and repetitive. It's still just like exciting every time. And I think that this song is kind of about being at that pivot point in your life where you might be starting to realize that this isn't going to last forever, but you're like fully committed to it in the moment. How long did you go until you saw them again? How long did that memory stay with you? One month. We saw him at the Black Cat in November. Nice. The reason the October show is the peak is because we all like got way out over our skis for the November show. Like we just got too blotto to like know what was going on. One of our friends jumped on the stage when he wasn't invited and he got kicked out. And then the security guards started converging on all of us. And we were like trying to circle around one of our friends and keep them off him so he wouldn't get kicked out. As a result, I got kicked out. I then told the bouncers I lost my sweater and so I needed to go back in. So they let me back in and I sat in the back and uh, a like 400,000 pound guy picked me up like I was a two-year-old and physically carried me in the most humiliating way out of the black cat. And I swore up and down I would never go to the black cat again as long as I live. So help me God. And then a cute girl invited me to the 80s dance party one Thursday night a couple months later. And I just, but yeah, that's like, I mean, it was the, that's kind of like, it went, we went too far. We like got to, we thought we owned the world after the auto bar show. And then the good people at the Black Cat kindly reminded us that we do not own the world. So, yeah. I should mention also that I was about to leave DC at this time to go to Tacoma, Washington. So I was planning to quit my job. Another one of my buddies, had gotten into graduate school. A bunch of us had broken up with girlfriends. So we just were completely untethered from even the bare minimum of commitments that you could possibly have if you were like us, lucky enough to go to college and get fun, easy jobs right away and just treat life like it's summer camp or something. So maybe we should talk about the song itself. 
It's a song that's such a, I mean, I think why the reason this is the song that you told that story with beyond the obvious about it being the closing song, whatever, is it's just, it taps into that bit of epic that the Hold Steady can reach to at their best and do a fair amount on this album, probably do a little bit more in the next one and so on. But the the feeling of there's there's more than just this song. Obviously, it brings home the it's the title track, sort of, and so that's obvious. Always sort of a fun track to watch out for as far as what it means. But then it just it just ha- feels like the end of a movie, right? It feels like the last scene. Everybody, you've got the montage going on. The everything's being resolved. They even, I mean, they literally take us down, up and down the East Coast with just name dropping a bunch of places. And yeah, there's just something that's really, um, they are not a mystical band by any, I, despite being steeped in the New Testament Catholicism. I don't, they don't strike me as mystical, but there's something here that's a little bit more, more than just what it seems on paper. Yeah, it seems to me that, Mike, you mentioned how you were sort of hitting that point where it was your party days and you were slowly you were slowly realizing that you can't live like that forever and you're going to have to leave those behind. Very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, by way of a perfect analogy, I think that the whole study were going through something similar. You saying you're talking you're standing on a stage passing around a handle of Jack with Craig Finn and Tad Kugler. I mean, two albums later. Tad Googler couldn't be, couldn't drink anymore. Either two or three albums. I don't want to characterize, but he, he was having some significant health problems related to substance abuse and he couldn't drink anymore. The, the partying was getting that bad. I don't want to assume that it was all, you know, hold steady partying on tour because there's probably other things going on. But, and I, you know, he's been pretty, he's been relatively public about this or the band has been relatively public about this that Tad can't drink anymore. Yeah, I think they were sort of <laughs> dynamically as a band, and of course through through also Craig's lyrics, making this making a similar discovery that k- killer parties literally almost did kill them. Right. So yeah, yeah, didn't seem to really slow Craig down yet for quite some time though, because like one of one of right. <laughs> right. one of my memorable Hold Steady shows was in was actually back to back nights at U Haul in 2012 when they sort of threw together this tour that hadn't been planned far enough in advance to book any venue that was actually an appropriate size for them. So they were back to playing the matchbox size auto bar, but it was U-Haul down here. And I went to the first night and it was fantastic. And the second night, a bunch of my friends were going, colleagues from work, and I couldn't get a ticket because it was sold out. So I just waited out front, hoping that I could scalp one from somebody. And I saw Tad walk by and just like said, hey, what's up? I was here last night, had a great time wondering if there's any chance you could get me in tonight. And he's just said, come walk around the corner with me. And so we did and stood over there while he was texting and we we're just like shooting the shit for 10 or 15 minutes. And he's telling me about how this tour had come together and how, you know, they've sort of gone their separate ways a little bit at this point. Craig was still into the tour life and the partying and the rest of them had needed to take multiple steps back and settled down and sort of they had families and things like that. So he wasn't really sure how this one was going to go, this tour, but they were still excited about it and having fun. And I guess Craig was out getting tuned up before the show and Tad was just pacing around the neighborhood a little bit. Then he's like, all right, you're in, you're on the list with a plus one, like have a great time. 
And so then later I got a round of, of whiskey shots for the band and put them on stage because I felt like they needed those. But just in terms of the, yeah, parts of the band continuing with the killer parties and parts of the band deciding, all right, this is, we do need to temper things a little bit. You, you know, I, I saw the, the shows at Brooklyn Bowl that they've been doing annually. I, I didn't get to go this year, but I, I went the year before. And this is post Tad's health issue. So he literally cannot drink. And prior to the Thursday night show, you saw Craig around and you kind of knew that, uh, uh, he's not, and he was pretty wasted for, for the show. And I remember seeing the dynamic of when they went on. Tad looked pissed off. <laughs> he looked like really, like he looked really annoyed with Craig because I mean, from some of the things that you sort of describe, Matt, that Craig still is seeking out those killer parties and maybe the rest of the band isn't. So, so. God love him for it. I wanted to talk about was this this song killer parties as like a closing show staple craig gives this speech in the middle of the song this so much joy speech and i remember the first time i heard that i thought that he was saying it for the first time i think it was during this like 2006 2005 touring era where he first broke out this routine i don't have it memorized but you know he says there's so much joy in what we do up here and he sort of acts overcome by the experience and the first time i heard it it like worked on me really well and then their video came from another show a couple nights later and he gave the same speech again and i remember kind of feeling like ah oh, man it wasn't a special night <laughs> i wasn't special to him like it was just a, it's something that he knew worked on the audience and was really effective and he's kind of, and it's just it's become this repetitious thing to the extent that now brooks and i saw saw them this year and it's i didn't realize that this had happened but it has evolved to the extent that when he says there is then the whole audience says with him so much joy in this kind of incantation I like when singers talk. Well, to, well, go ahead, Sean. Now he even has sort of a five-minute buildup, uh, an apologia for the fact that yes, he does say this every show. I I know what you guys are gonna. You guys know what I'm gonna say. You know, <laughs> you know, then the band's beating away behind him. You know, so it's it, yeah. Not only is there that ritual, but there's the the pre-ritual before the ritual, which is. I have to apologize for what I'm about to do because I do it every show. So yeah, go ahead. Well, I, the first time I saw that was actually, I think the first time I saw them and it was, I guess a year after Mike was, had gone to those, those multiple shows. Cause my first show was like in October or November of 2007 at nine 30 club. And they, he trotted that out. Um, the so much joy line. And at that point there were already people around me who were like the hardcore fans who had been going to these shows and they knew it was coming and they said it in unison and I'm looking around and I'm like, Hmm. Okay. So this is rehearsed, but 
it still made me feel the same way that Mike is is describing. Like I still felt connected. And I think that's that's one of the biggest things with this band overall to me is that like every show experience, even if they feel kind of similar and sometimes they feel really similar, um, even if you go back to back nights, you're like, all right, this is kind of the same show. I mean, the pieces are moved around, but it's the same experience. But that doesn't mean I wouldn't want to go see it three nights in a row. You know, people are still wanting to go to these these sets that they're playing at Brooklyn Bowl and other places multiple nights in a row because there's just this feeling of connection and a little bit of an out of body experience and you're you're tethered to the people around you who you don't know but they have to have the same feelings toward this band and toward this connection that you do and i think that's just a testament to to Craig and to the rest of the band and to the lyrics but to to the experience and the community that they've created through these shows and the culmination with killer parties at the end just feels like the appropriate time to really remind people not that you need the reminder but it it really is like the hey we're we're in this together. You're here. We're here. We're in this city that we're going to name drop instead of Ybor City at the end of this this line, the end of the song. It's, you sort of like swell up in the audience and you're like, this is why I came. This is why I'm here. I, I feel fulfilled. I feel like I got what I wanted out of this show. And now I'm ready to go home or come back tomorrow night. Or if you're Mike, just stay on the, sh- on the stage in a trance until they throw you out. I think I it points up this really dissonant thing for me as a listener it's such an obvious fact that every band plays the same song tens of thousands of times you're never seeing someone perform their material for the first time when they get up on stage but i always have this like impression that's almost childlike of rock musicians don't do anything and then they get on stage and it's like they just there's some illusion for me at least that that rock music is sort of improvisational or on the fly. And this, this makes it just so clear in its current iteration that it, it's just such a reminder that this is all like repeated and rehearsed. And that's why the bands are good, but it also, I don't know, there's something like so spontaneous feeling about rock music. And I just think back to like, when I first heard a live recording of Pearl Jam and they're playing a uh, beast of burden by the stones and Eddie sings, all I want is for you to make love to me. And the audience goes wild, especially the women. And he goes, that's just in the song. I didn't mean it. And I just like, you get these little pieces of when, when these people who are sort of legendary to you, they like talk during a song. It's like, you feel more like they're, people and I feel like there's a weird tension there with this speech like it's rehearsed it's playing in this space where like normally when the the singer talks to the audience you kind of get something from them and you are getting something but I don't think it's quite the same thing with the so much joy speech the first time I heard it I was had my doors completely blown off and that'll never be taken away but now I'm not quite like so so sure I think it speaks, if you pull together all this, though, I think what makes the Hold Steady, the reason we're here talking about their album from 16 years ago, is they still sound like a bar band in this album. They talk about being a bar band. They feel like, even though they're a New York band by now, they still feel from Minneapolis, from the Twin Cities. There's, There's a rootedness to their music. And... They achieved wild success, I think, beyond, you know, I remember listening to that first album and like, oh, this is great. They're great. They could be really good. But no idea that 
Boys, Boys and Girls in America was going to be as big as it was. And, you know, not that they became, I don't know, like Arcade Fire or something, but they became a pretty big band and they're outpunched their weight class. And for them to still be the sort of band that will bring you on stage or that will, the guitarist will see you outside and say, yeah, follow me and I'll let you in. They're able to transcend that. And I think I come back to what Sean was saying about the rituals. They, through rituals, you know, a ritual is going to be repeated. It's going to be, in theory, the same every time. But there's just that bit of chemistry. And that's what makes, you know, that's what makes live music between multiple people special because your rhythms are slightly off and they correspond. And then if you have the right vibe at a show, you just have that little bit of chemistry which bounces off each other and then it becomes a little bit more unique. And that they, you know, it's clever that Craig has transformed that into a self-aware ritual. But I, I think that's, it, it also gets at that tension that you started with Mike about the party lifestyle versus the fact that it almost killed me and that you can't do it forever. And that sort of realism versus romanticism tension yeah. there. Yeah. You know, it's, it, I mean, think about it. If you went to a hold steady show and they didn't end with, oh, I, I got something I want to say. And I know <laughs> they didn't end with that. You would want your fucking money back <laughs> because that's not a hold steady show. This has to happen or else you didn't go. You know what I mean? I watched this sort of play out in Mike's head and his friend Leon's head, who I know has been on a previous show, like when we went to this Brooklyn Bowl show in December. And they were, I think they were both after the show, just like, we've seen that before. And, you know, they didn't play enough songs off of Almost Kill Me and Separation Sunday. And this, it was fun, but was it really as fun as it used to be? And was it worth it? We came all the way up here. And, you know, I had a good time and I love this band, but I'm just, I, nah, I don't know. And then it wasn't until I think the next morning when I was replaying some of the videos I'd taken and stuff on my phone and Mike was like, you know what? I'm kind of an asshole. Leon's an asshole. It was a great show. You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just needed to think about it some more. I don't know if Leon ever came to that realization, but it's not, it wasn't to take away from the fact that it's not the same. It's, not, it's never going to be the same as your first time. It's not your first makeout session in the backseat of a car. It's not whatever. But the, you know, the rituals and the fact that you know what's coming, but you're there to see it because you want to experience it and you want to feel it. And it's still there, even if some of the, you know, they're playing some of the newer stuff. It, it's, it's about the experience. And that's, I still always come back to that with this band when I try to explain to people why I like them. And they're like, that guy can't sing. It's, his, his vocals are terrible. That band doesn't sound like a good rock band. You know, you like so many bands that are better and more polished than this. What is it about them? And it's about the experience and it's about the live show. I always say they're my favorite live band. They might not be my favorite band of all time, but they're my favorite live band because that experience just brings you in and makes you feel like, you know, you're a part of something. And Craig literally says that we're, we're part of this. We're all in this together and that kind of thing. We are all the hold steady as corny as it is, it, it makes you feel like it's true. And he's speaking to you individually and as a collective. And that's why I will go see them anywhere at any point at any time that, that I can. And Craig actually articulates that sort of feeling in, in first night, Holly's inconsolable because we can't get as high as we got on that first night. We're going to be inconsolable, minorly inconsolable in the way that we, that, that band just, Oh my God, they did play this. And ah, Oh my God. But I mean, or, or, oh, here we go with the, with the Apologia Pro Vita, so much joy thing. But God damn it. I mean, I, I feel the same way. I mean, I'm, I will go see that band live whenever and wherever I can because it, 
because there there's going to be that one moment. So, yeah. I think it's funny. First of all, I'm probably going to be embarrassed about that speech I gave at the bar after that show for like the rest of my life. <laughs> Leon texted me later and was like, how big of joyless hacks does your friend Matt think that we are? Matt said something like just a fair amount. But I, I think it's interesting. Sean brought up ritual and Matt, I think you're basically talking about faith in the way that you're describing your love of the band and sort of doing these things, even though they're not the same as they used to be. And sort of that all comes down to a kind of like belief in the band and believe in the goodness of it. And I think that that's probably a real source for a lot of people, especially people who have followed them a lot more closely than I did over the ensuing years where I really kind of like flamed out on them in this October, November, 2006 phase and in a burst of, I think, pretty substantial glory. But yeah, I, I think that's what keeps people coming back is that not only is the music sort of literally engaged with the idea of faith, but somehow this band provokes this enduring loyalty and faith in them by the way that they connect with people. Yeah, I think everyone has some story they can tell. If you've seen them live, you have some story that you can tell, or even if you haven't, maybe like just that this song spoke to you in a certain way. You rub shoulders with some member of the band. It might not be, you know, literally on stage sharing a handle or behind a club trying to get in or the Craig on his solo tour at the pug after playing at Rock and Roll Hotel, just shooting the shit about whether it's okay to have a, an American League team and a National League team when he was talking to me and some fellow sports reporters. But there's there's something that you can tangibly say like that I feel some semblance of a connection to that band and that's why I like them beyond Wait, beyond the music. What side of the debate was he? He's probably like, you can only have one team. Oh, correct? no, 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 no. no. He's, I mean, he's a Twins guy through and through, but now that he's, I mean, he's been living in New York forever, so he's a Mets fan too. And he, we're, we're discussing whether that's okay. And viable. We, we, we allowed it's it. It's not okay. That's another strike. <laughs> <laughs> and so much joy speech, picking up new baseball teams every once in a while. This guy's just, this guy's got no integrity. <laughs> I don't remember the so much joy speech. The only time I saw them was 2005. And I saw them at the local 506 at Chapel Hill. Oh, hell yeah. Love that venue. Nice venue. I But I went alone. I didn't have any friends who were really into this stuff i had one set of friends who was in a band i think i referenced them last time but they i don't know how close i was with them yet and anyway i went alone i interviewed the band for the website i wrote for that opened for them the plastic constellations who were kind of a younger band from minneapolis and so there was a bit of camaraderie there but yeah i don't i remember craig flapping a lot and I remember it was a great show. I mean, this, and if you look, I've looked it up and posted, there's a YouTube video of them playing Cattle and the Creeping Things, which is probably my favorite Hold Steady song. Same. Yeah. So, but yeah, I don't, I'm sure they closed with, with Killer Parties, but I don't remember a big speech or anything like that. It might've been there. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if I just forgot about it, but I mean, yeah, they were a great band. It was definitely a good... Matt, I think that you, you mentioned earlier this sort of circular nature, well, not earlier, but before we started recording, the circular nature of the album, how it starts out with, we woke up in the 20s, and it ends with, we woke up in Ybor City. Since we partied, then I'm pretty sure we partied, I really don't remember, 
I remember we departed from our bodies. We woke up in Ybor City. And that put me in mind of a lot of, you know, again, I always connected to literature. I mean, a number of major, especially like 20th century works are circular. If you've ever read Finnegan's Wake, and, and again, you don't really read Finnegan's Wake, but it's, it's a circular work. It, it starts with uh, a river run past Adam and Eve's, and then it ends, the last chapter, the, la the last sentence in the book isn't really a sentence. It ends mid-sentence. And it's, the idea is, if you're reading it closely, and again, <laughs> no mean feat reading Finnegan's Wake closely, it's connected to the very first sentence in the book. And a lot of Eliot's poetry is like that. And I can't help but think, because, you know, I said this on the, I think I said this in the last podcast we did, that Separation Sunday is our generation's The Wasteland. It's, um, it almost clocks to the cantos that Eliot set out. And I'd like, I'd like to hear more about how you think, when you said that before we got recording, made me think of that. So if you have any opinions about the circular nature of their, of their song, of, of, you know, not just on Almost Killed Me, but anywhere else as well, if we can skip ahead. I, I, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a conscientiousness and an in, intentional nature of the lyrics throughout, obviously. But I think in, in putting an album together, however the structure is built, always thinking about how this connects to the previous song and how it's going to connect to the next song and how it's going to connect to the next album. If nothing else, it is a, is a total exercise in mind games for, for fans to try to figure out where this fits in the chronology. And there are so many blog posts and other things written by people trying to figure out where things work. But at least in the context of this first album, it's very clear that you're starting in one place and you're ending in one place. And they're clearly connected lyrically. It's all about places and people and how they fit together in the, in the course of this album. And that we started in one place and we finished in another, but they're interrelated. We were probably partying then, we're partying now. And we're just waking up from this this experience, this dream, this novel we've written together over the course of this album and that kind of thing. But yeah, there's there's definitely a lot to that. And if you want to read too far deeply into it, you could say, you know, their symbol on the Stay Positive album that everyone has tattooed on them, many people of the the infinity symbol is Sean, of course. Yeah, you. But how it all it all is interrelated and it keeps coming back to the same places and we're going down the same roads that we've been on before. We're hearing the same canned so much joy speeches but it all, it all works. And it's, it's not neat and tidy necessarily, but you're eventually going to get to the, the intended place. And then you're going to look back and say, that's where we came from. And now we're here. And have, how much have we grown? Or are we in the same place that we started? Well, and for all the New Testament, it's sort of Ecclesiastes, nothing new under the sun. It's all that revolving right. and the characters revolving. And I think the music here it gets really dissonant and feedbacky and sort of floats off. It feels a little bit like they're coming out of a dream. I think what's satisfying about that, and maybe I started to hint at this earlier, what's satisfying is it feels like it's a journey and it feels like everything has, we all go through our own journeys for however long we have, but you, we have a hard time as humans thinking in a, the full perspective or maybe, you know, maybe when we get towards the end, we'll be better, but this is, a good piece of art condenses that and makes you feel like you've gone through that journey. And this feels earned, I think. You know, they have a, they're great at, at least the first three albums and probably Stay Positive have pretty good closing songs. It's just something that they're quite good at, but it feels like 
they work at it and they deliver it. And what's interesting about this is pointing to Mike's thing about the peak of the Hold Steady. This is my favorite Hold Steady album, but they were probably better as a band on the next album and even arguably Blues and Girls in America. But So that you have this journey and it feels like you've completed, but there's still what's exciting about it is you know that there's more good stuff coming. You know that there's they're not past their prime. And so now that they come back to it at every show is sort of a reward for those of us who have stuck with them. If she says we party, then I'm pretty sure we party. Really don't remember. Remember we departed from our bodies. We woke up in Ebor City. Sticking with the musical aspect and how the song is constructed, I think it's just a one of the simplest rock and roll progressions. The major root chord, then down to the minor six, then to the four, then to the five. Like that song Last Kiss, a lot of like 50s songs follow that same pattern. And the song is... It must be right around 60 beats per minute. Just the bass just hitting so steadily through the whole song. It's like this heartbeat. And I think that it carries you through on these very, very simple elemental ingredients, rock and roll ingredients. And because those elements are so simple and powerful, you get to inhabit the lyrics and the story and the feeling of being in this cyclical, epic story. I think it all comes together in that way. And the, and the fact that the song itself is repetitive and doesn't change the progression throughout and just hits you with that bass line the whole time and that classic drum beat which also feels like it's been used in so many different songs i think that this song doesn't work if it's more complex in the approach musically it only kind of works if it has this just rhythm section pulse to it that frees the band up to and frees your mind up you don't have to pay attention to that so much it's just there kind of guiding you through and allows this sort of elemental message of near death and cyclicality and voyages to kind of wash over you. There's a reason that this song closes everything and there's a reason that the speech happens in this song. And I think it's because that groove is easy to overlook, but really, really powerful. Yeah, can we just give some credit to Gavin and Bobby as a great rhythm section? They're fucking fantastic rhythm section. Yeah, this is a real... I was listening to that before we came on today. The bass and then just the drums wailing. I mean, it's very strong for that. It's just a jam. And it's, as I was thinking of certain songs a little bit, both because they echo the For the Lovers line, but also they're both kind of corny songs, 
but they get this much better than certain songs gets away with it and again feels like it can earn its stripes and going straight from the rock like you said one one six four five progression yeah to me it's just it's just one long breakdown too i mean that like mike was saying it's just it's a song but it's almost not a song and it's just like yeah. it's just like putting down a blanket so that craig can stand on it and and <laughs> fossil, fossilize yeah I mean, whatever <laughs> that's a great way down like such it. a great yeah i did buy a virginia's for lovers t-shirt during this my epic 2006 run and i wore it i wore it like all the time <laughs> it wore out so fast yeah it is funny how the references are so bumper sticker level continues <laughs> for the lovers Philly's full of friendly friends love you like a brother so much joy could be a bumper sticker yeah yeah i'm surprised they don't sell that okay odds and ends guys any last parting shots I would just say like in terms of spinning things forward into Separation Sunday, the fact that basically the, the beginning of this song, if they ask about Charlemagne, be polite and say something vague. If they ask about Charlemagne, be polite and say something vague, like another lover lost to the restaurant rates. Is almost repeated verbatim and don't let me explode on the next album there he asked what happened to Charlemagne and in this context I think we're supposed to consider that this is the Gideon character and she meaning Holly just smiled all polite and said something vague she said Charlemagne got caught up in something in some complicated things she wiped her nose and she winked I think e even if you just like considering the the winking aspect these songs are constantly winking at each other we're constantly looking back at what has happened what we've what Craig has told us previously about these characters and their journeys and being reminded, yeah, this is how it went down. That's still in the front of our minds that neat in a neat and tidy way is like, here's that package from the first album. We're going to inject it right into the second album to remind you of where we were just a few songs ago. Matt, I wonder if, and this is something that literally just occurred to me. I wonder if Gideon is the focus of almost killed me. And if you could argue that Holly becomes the focus of, Separation Sunday, almost as if they're two novels with separate main characters, because the entire song cycle almost completely revolves around Holly, or either she's speaking directly, or people are, or you know, other narrators are talking about her. Yeah, well, I think I mean Gideon's the one who falls apart and almost killed me, and then and then she's exactly right. Yeah, and Holly's Holly's the one who's making the choices and deciding who to go with at every turn. So yeah, that works. She's going to go with whoever's going to get her the highest. Not a great policy. <laughs> <laughs> this song means a lot to me. It matters a lot to me that wherever I've evolved since then, I'll always go back to this 2006 and these memories of trying to tear shit up and being a little bit sort of deluded and how cool, interesting, fun, good at partying I was at that time, but completely inhabiting that delusion and living by it. I love how good at parties is a skill set. Like, <laughs> I think it's, I, you know, you, Mike, you know what? Mike's good at parties. He's really good. It's funny you say that. I, I once bragged about being good at drinking to someone and they kind of stopped and were like, what did you just say? 
And if you think about what that means to be good at partying, it's sort of closer to saying I have a problem than it is to saying I'm a cool person. That, that, that's what, like, apparently, if you've ever heard Eric Clapton, who's been in recovery for decades, like he talks about when he took, when he drank his first beer, it's like, I was born to do this. <laughs> I'm good at this. <laughs> I'm really good at this. So, I, yeah, well, I think that border zone is what the whole study is about a lot. And I think that's what this song is about a lot. That's sort of maybe a testament to how it can endure over the long term and how the ritual can endure over the long term is I have a very different perspective on those lifestyle choices now than I did when I was just fully endorsed reckless behavior. But I still get a lot out of this song and I don't mind going back to 2006 and sort of visiting that version of myself, even though I don't agree with a lot of the things that I might have done back then. And I think that combination of regret and nostalgia is what Killer Party's Almost Killed Me sort of says within that line. It almost killed me. That's interesting, but it almost killed me. I almost died. So not that I ever came close to anything like that, but. Thank God for Mary from American University. Mary from American. <laughs> yeah, she. Yeah, we could have all gone into the drunk tank in Baltimore that night. Thank you, Mary. I changed your name, but I think you'll know who you are. I'll email you this recording. <laughs> <laughs> Great blog post, too. Good writer. Moved out to Boston. Got married. As we all do. Thanks for listening to our Killer Parties episode of A Positive Jam. Thank you to Matt and Sean for joining us. You can support Matt by checking out the Washington Post's Voraciously website. And he's on Twitter at MattBrooksWP. You can follow Sean on Twitter at Sean Westfall. He spells Sean with a W, not a U. Thank you to the Hold Steady, to whom the rights to killer parties belong. We made two mistakes that we know of on this episode. I saw the band in early 2006, not 2005, and the drummer on Almost Kill Me was Judd Council, not Bobby Drake. There are at least two bonus episodes left, and next week we're hitting the bonus tracks, so watch out for that. Subscribe to our podcast, leave a review, or share with a friend if you could. It's a Short Man Studios production. There's a lot of joy in what we do, too, and we'd love to hear from you. At Shortman Studios on Twitter, or at Taylor or at Daniel Shortman. Or email us at mail at shortmanstudios.com. We're sharing a recording of the So Much Joy bit from YouTuber Tony Earp from 2009 Islington. Enjoy, and see you next week.